Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Best-selling author Lisa Genova has just released her second book, Left Neglected. It's a fictional look at the devastating effects of a traumatic brain injury on a high-powered supermom, Sarah Nickerson, and is inspired by an actual fascinating condition called left neglect, where people are unaware of everything on their left side. As well as being a best-selling author, Lisa is also a neuroscientist. She graduated valedictorian from Bates College and went on to complete a PhD in neuroscience from Harvard University. She's also an advocate for various dementia support organizations and writes for the National Alzheimer's Association in the U.S. Her first book, Still Alice, about a woman with Alzheimer's told through her own eyes, was originally self-published when she couldn't find a publisher, but it was eventually picked up by Simon & Schuster and rocketed to the New York Times bestseller list. It's also been translated for sale in countries all over the world. Lisa, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Now, tell us about your latest book. It's called Left Neglected, and um, tell us what it's about. Left Neglected is about a 37-year-old working mother. She has three children and a high-powered job, and she is like a lot of working moms today. She's really busy trying to sort of be it all, have it all, and do it all. She's multitasking all day. She's got a to-do list a mile long. She's exhausted. Um, and one morning on the way to work, she is on her cell phone while she's driving her car and takes her eyes off the road for a second too long and gets in a car accident and sustains a traumatic brain injury. And she ends up with a neurological condition called left neglect. And it's a condition in which your brain is no longer aware of the existence of anything on the left side of anything, including the left side of you. Wow. Yeah, it's very strange. It's, um, so if you have this, um, you're not blind, your eyes still work, um, and you're not paralyzed. You can move your left arm and leg if only you knew you had them. Um, if you have this, you would only eat food from the right side of your plate and think you've finished your meal. Wow. If you're a woman, you would put makeup on the right side of your face and think you're looking gorgeous and ready to go out. Um, if you're a man, you'd shave the right side of your face and could have a full beard on the left. Um, and just you don't pay attention to anything on the left. So the story is about um, her journey of recovery and the uh, learning to sort of reprioritize and pay attention to what really matters, um, to sort of slow down and... Um, live a life that's a little more paid attention to. And this is an actual condition in real life, isn't it? Oh, yes, yes. And so when are they aware that they have left neglect? Um, not Usually not at first. What doctors will say is they're unaware of their unawareness. So patients look perfectly fine. They actually feel fine. They're not aware that anything is missing. Um, there's a passage in the book where her husband asks her to well, why can't you just turn your head? And she says, I'm, I, I, everything I see, 
is here. I don't, I'm not aware that anything is missing. It's like if I told you, tell me everything you see in the room. Now, what if I told you that everything you see is only half of everything that's really here? Now turn your head and look at the other half. Where would you look? I mean, that's how bizarre it feels to people. So they, they're not really aware that they're missing anything until they bump into the left side of the door or they try to read a page from a book and it doesn't make any sense. Um, so they're sort of the, the whole world is constantly jarring them into the reality that they're missing half of it. Wow. Um, and is there a way for them to train themselves to then understand what's on the left? Yes, so that's the part of the recovery process. So people who have this go through a lot of rehabilitation, and it's about training another part of your brain that hasn't been damaged to first be aware that there is a left side. And honest to God, it's real, it's there. Go ahead and try to look for it. So to become aware that there's a left and then to go find it. Um, So it's sort of retraining another part of your brain to take over that responsibility. Now, you're also, apart from being a best-selling author, you're also a neuroscientist. So presumably you got a lot of research uh, for this book through your work as a neuroscientist and you, you, you've you met and dealt with and, and researched in real life people with left neglect. Yes. So, you know, I actually hadn't ever met anyone with this condition while I was studying neuroscience as a student or when I was practicing research. I had read a lot about it, and actually a lot of your listeners might have um, come across this without being aware of it. There's a short story about a man with left neglect in a book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks. Mm, mm. And that, mm, yeah, and that was my first exposure to it as well. And so I kept coming across little stories about people in a hospital setting or in a doctor's office who had it. And every time I would be left wondering, well, how does someone live with this? How do you walk through a whole world only aware of half of it? What happens when that person leaves the doctor's office? Mm. Um, and so the, the my degree in neuroscience didn't give me any access to research on left neglect while I was, you know, practicing science. But as a novelist, it sort of opened all the doors I needed to walk through to understand it. So I came to know nine people who have left neglect very well and talked to them over and over again while I was writing the book. And I went to a couple of rehabilitation hospitals and talked to occupational therapists, physical therapists, and speech therapists, the people who help these people rehabilitate. And how common is it? Well, you know, it's much more common than I thought. I thought that this was going to be an extremely rare condition because I'd never met anyone with it. So unlike Alzheimer's, um, which was the topic of my first book, Still Alice, um, you know, everyone knows, everyone is aware of Alzheimer's at this point. It's so prevalent. Um, I thought I was going to have a hard time finding people with left neglect. It turns out if you... Go, if you call any rehabilitation hospital anywhere and ask them if they've heard of this condition, they'll say, oh, sure, we have people with that here right now. Mm. Um, it's, it's a condition that can follow a stroke to the right hemisphere, mm. um, to the right side of the brain, um, a traumatic brain injury or an aneurysm, a hemorrhage. So it's more common than I was originally aware of. So tell us about your first book, Still Alice. For those who haven't, who aren't familiar with it yet, what was it about and why did you decide to write it? Uh, so Still Alice is about a 50-year-old woman. She's a Harvard psychology professor and she starts experiencing moments of forgetting that seem a little unusual for her, but she chalks them up at first to signs of, you know, getting a little older or maybe I'm just too busy or stressed and I've been traveling a lot and maybe it's 
a symptom of menopause. But they get they keep getting worse and a little more alarming, and eventually she goes to see a doctor, and she's diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's. And so the book becomes about her journey from then on and trying to if she, you know this is a woman who's placed all of her identity and worth in what she does which is you know very cerebral and if she can no longer be that then she's forced to ask herself questions like who am i now and how do i matter with all that i am while i'm here and am i more than what i can remember mm-hmm. so it's about her relationship with her family and and herself um as she tries her best to live with alzheimer's and the jump from neuroscience to writing fiction is quite big. <laughs> Why did you decide to do it? Have you always been interested in writing or did this come later, this, this interest? How did that all happen? Yeah, it definitely is not linear. Um, <laughs> I had no conscious ambition to be a writer. Um, I, this all started when my grandmother had Alzheimer's. Um, my grandmother walked to the bowling alley in the middle of the night thinking it was the middle of the day. Mm. And our family could no longer put off her forgetting to normal aging. She was 85 at the time, and we just assumed, like a lot of families, that, you know, Nana's getting old and she's starting to become forgetful. But this walk to the bowling alley in the middle of the night couldn't be normal forgetting. And, in fact, it was Alzheimer's. And so as a, as a neuroscientist in the family, I really felt it was my responsibility to learn everything I could about this disease and educate my family so that they could better take care of her. And I, I found that everything I read was, you know, it, 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 it was fascinating for me to learn about as a neuroscientist, and it was very satisfying to learn all of the information about, you know, the current understanding of what causes it. Um, but that didn't help the granddaughter in me. It helped the neuroscientist, not the granddaughter. And everything was written by either a scientist or a clinician or a social worker or a caregiver. They were all views from the outside looking in. And so I could never get a satisfying answer to the question that I kept coming up with every time I would um, spend time with my grandmother, which was, what does it feel like to have this? Like, What is she going through? And at this point, she was sort of too far along in the progression of the disease to have a conversation with me about it. Um, So I, for some reason, and I still never fully understand why I went here, but I said to a colleague at work at the time that I wanted to write a novel someday about a woman with Alzheimer's and tell it from her perspective, from the very first symptoms, to really sort of get an understanding of what it feels like to have it. Mm. Um, And then a few things happened years later. I ended up quitting my job because my oldest daughter was born, and um, when it was time for me to go back to work, um, my life was in a little bit of upheaval. I, had, um, I was in the middle of a divorce, and so I needed to go back to work. And um, instead of going back to my old job, I sort of asked myself this question, um, if I could do anything I wanted, what would it be? And instead of going back to my old job, I decided to drop my daughter off at preschool and go to the coffee shop near my house and start writing Bill Alice. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's, um, that's a big leap of faith. Yeah. yeah, It was felt a little crazy. (laughs) Was it difficult? Did other people think you were crazy? Did other people think, Oh my God, she should get a job. What? (laughs) Oh yeah. My parents were horrified and (laughs) completely worried about me. Um, yeah, I mean, my former colleagues in academia were becoming professors at Harvard and Yale, and my other colleagues in business, I had been a strategy consultant for 
pharmaceutical companies and biotech. I mean, they were, you know, being paid well and being promoted. And I'm a divorced single mom in a coffee shop. Wow. Yeah, it was, it it definitely felt a little crazy, but I also loved every minute of it too. Mm -hmm. It was so um, satisfying to do that research. And I came to know, um, you know, something like 25 people who have early onset Alzheimer's. And I was, in touch with them every day while I was writing the book online. Mm. Um, and I shadowed neurologists at Mass General Hospital in Boston. And it was, um, it was, it was definitely satisfying that question for me of what does it feel like to have this? So you sat in this coffee shop. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. You did your research. You wrote this book. How long did it take? And then tell us what happened when it got to the stage where you, you finished, you want to get it published. Ah, uh, so um, it took about a year and a half. I did about four months of research up front and then continued it while I was writing. And then I did what you're supposed to do next. I, in the United States, you're supposed to find a literary agent who will represent your book, who will then go on to find a publishing house that would publish your book. Um, and you, you typically do the research of literary agents through this book called The Literary Marketplace. And I found about 100 agents that I could send query letters to. Um, and I'm still waiting to hear back from many of them. <laughs> um, but mostly I, it was a, a long process of waiting. I waited about nine months to hear from anyone um, with a positive response. I got a lot of dear author, no thank you rejection letters. In fact, to this day, I'll open a book in my house and find a little strip of paper um, that says, you know, dear author, your book is not for us. Um but uh, nine months into the process, I heard back from four literary agents who wanted to read the book. Um, one I still haven't heard back from. Mm-hmm. Two uh, said they thought that Alzheimer's would be um, too depressing, that people wouldn't want to read about it. And the last one said, you know, you've got this PhD in neuroscience from Harvard. You should be writing nonfiction. Write a nonfiction book about Alzheimer's mm-hmm. and then get back to me. And at this point, I had really exhausted all of my options with literary agents, and I decided I'd waited long enough. And so I told him, you know, thank you very much, but I've had enough of this. I'm going to go self-publish it. Wow. To which he said, do not do that. You will kill your writing career before it starts. Mm. Um, so I'm so thankful that I had the stupid confidence to ignore him <laughs> because I went ahead and self-published um, in the summer of 2007 and sold it out of the trunk of my car for 10 months before it was bought by Simon & Schuster. Okay, now how did you support yourself this whole time? Uh, Well, a a couple of things happened. Um, While I was writing Still Alice, I started dating a documentary filmmaker and photographer from Cape Cod, and I married him (laughs) um, in the spring of 2007. Um, And I also, prior to that, in the course of my divorce, we had sold off sort of our investments and things we bought together. And so I had a little nest egg, but I certainly wasn't saving any money at the time. So what got you through? You're selling the book out of the trunk of your car before Simon and Schuster pick it up. It's it's hard work because it's you've just spent all this time writing and now you've got to, you know, sell a product. You've got to run a business, basically. You've got to market it. What got you through? Yeah, and, you know, I have this conversation with authors who are about to self-publish all the time. I let them know that you have to wear a lot of hats. It's a lot of work. Mm. So you have to be your own publicist, your own, you know, marketing department, your own distribution. It's it's a lot. Um, 
uh, online helps a lot. So the book was available um, through online retailers, and I got involved in social networking places like Facebook and Goodreads and mm-hmm. Twitter. Mm-hmm. So you can help spread the word beyond your neighborhood. Um, but I knew that I wasn't trying to make a living off my self-published book. I knew that I was just trying to create a loud enough buzz to get enough readers interested in talking about it that I could sort of develop this proof of concept to literary agents or publishing houses to say, I've got an audience and they're excited Mm. about the book. Mm. So that when it came to your next book, it wasn't going to be as difficult? Oh, no. I mean, uh, Still Alice, uh, when Simon Schuster published Still Alice Mm. in the States, it debuted at number five on the New York Times bestseller list. Mm. And it was on the list for like 33 weeks that year. Mm. Um, And it's been translated into over 20 countries. Um, so immediately they wanted me to sign a contract for mm. my next book. And so it was so funny to me because here I had this finished novel for the longest time that <laughs> no one would pay me a dime for. Mm. And then I, the, with the next book, I hadn't written a word of it yet. It was sold. Well, yeah, you just had to back yourself in, in that first situation. So yeah. it's done very well in Australia. And um, I have no doubt that Left Neglected is going to be just as big. With the scientific information that you have to cover for people to understand some of the concepts um, that you talk about in your book and some of the experiences that your characters are going through, how did you get that balance between not being too technical Mm. and still making it digestible for your reader but giving them enough information so that it's factual and accurate and all of that? Right. So, you know, I really view these novels as an opportunity to educate people about these conditions that they normally wouldn't know as much or anything about. Um, But I'm not trying to write a textbook. I mean, I don't want to give people homework. My primary goal is to entertain. Mm. And then through that story that's entertaining and moving, I sneak in the education. Um, So I'm not trying to, I mean, you know, I, I did that homework. I read all of the the literature on Alzheimer's and it does feel like homework. Um, and it's, you know, when you read the facts and, and the statistics and when you read about the molecular mechanisms of the causes, it's information that lives in your head. Mm. Um, and what I wanted to do was give people the information but have it live in your heart. Um, and it's a very different experience. Mm. Um, I also used to teach. I have a love of teaching. I used to teach um, neuroscience to undergraduates. I used to teach neuroanatomy to Harvard medical students. Um, and I... I I think I have a, a knack for understanding my audience. I, I give a lot of um, mm. talks. I've had the opportunity to be an advocate for Alzheimer's now, and so I give talks at Alzheimer's conferences mm. um, all over the place. And um, I can I can give that sort of talk to the medical community, or I can give it to you know a room full of people like my family. Mm-hmm. And I, I appreciate the difference. And I realize I'm writing a novel. I'm not writing a nonfiction um, piece. I'm writing. Um, a story that primarily has to draw people in and have you care about the characters Mm. and interested in how this experience is going to change them. So you've obviously got two novels under your belt now, but before Still Alice, you know, you'd come from neuroscience. When you were in that coffee shop and writing, how did you know you were on the right track? How did you know that you were crafting your writing in, in, in the right way? Right. So, right. So I have this neuroscience degree <laughs> that opened all the doors to all the research I could ever want. And I have this, I have a grandmother who had Alzheimer's, so I've got this great personal experience. But how the heck do I know how to write anything? <laughs> um, 
So I had never taken a writing class. I took one English class my freshman year in college just to satisfy my English requirement. Um, I did a couple of things. I read a lot of books on craft, and I talked to a lot of people about what they would recommend, and I was fortunate enough to get pointed to um, a few really good books. Um, one in particular is called Writing Down the Bones by Natalie Goldberg. Um, but beyond that, the best thing I did was sort of a happy accident. So while I'm being this wildly irresponsible divorced single mom in a coffee shop writing a novel, I figured I might as well keep going. I'd always wanted to learn how to act. Mm. And you might imagine that the neuroscience kids don't really <laughs> dabble <laughs> with the drama club. Um, so I figured, here's my chance. Why not? So I actually trained with a group of 11 other actors in Boston for the year and a half that I was writing Still Alice um, for nine hours a week. And I found that the acting class was the best writing class I could have ever taken. Mm-hmm. So the things I was learning as an actress applied beautifully to writing. And there were things like you're always telling the truth under imaginary circumstances, and you're always raising the stakes as high as possible whenever possible. Um, what do people want from each other, and who's getting it, who's not, and how are you changed by what happens? Mm. How do you express honest emotion um, spontaneously in response to what happens? And just sort of how to analyze a script and an arc of a story and all of those things that I would learn in acting class um, I would then go home and write, and I found that all of those principles applied beautifully. Mm-mm. Now, what? how big a part of your life now does neuroscience or anything to do with that take, or is it you focusing mainly on your writing and acting, perhaps? What, what's the balance? Yeah, so um, so I mentioned that I remarried, and I moved to Cape Cod, which is about two hours south of Boston. And there are no – and I, I married him and moved before I self-published Still Alice, which was quite scary because there are no neuroscience lab, pharmaceutical company, biotech, consulting, anything on the Cape. Mm. Um, so – I was thinking I'm I'm really hoping to make a career as a writer or I don't know, I'm going to end up landscaping or something. <laughs> so um, I write. That's what I do now. I don't do any neuroscience research and I am really privileged and, and so grateful that I get to use that passion that I have for the brain and, and how it works and how it reveals our personalities and our wants and our moods and our memories in my writing and I get to bring that to a much greater audience than I did in the past with, you know, my neuroscience research Mm. and it being a part of a very small scientific community. So are you already working on your next novel? Oh, yes. Um, Can you tell us about it? Yes, yes. My next book is called Love, Anthony, and I'm I'm writing it now. It's about um, two women who are connected to each other through a boy with autism. Mm And the uh, boy with autism, he's um, on the sort of severe on the spectrum. He is nonverbal and doesn't like to make eye contact and doesn't like to be touched. So I think most of what's written about autism or what most people are familiar with in the literature has to do with Asperger's, um, sort of a more high-functioning autism. And so I sort of like my other two books, I'm really interested in giving a face and a voice to people who aren't well understood. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm working on now. Tell us, when you're writing, as opposed to traveling and, you know, doing book tours, um, 
tell us about your writing routine, like your, like your daily routine. Do you have any morning rituals you have to get through before you can sit down and, or, or do you let it all come out organically? Do you plot it all out? How does it work? Oh, okay. Well, this is a great question. Um, so a few things. Um, I actually still write in a coffee shop. I write in Starbucks. Wow. Um, you still write yeah, in a coffee shop. <laughs> I do. And here's why. I have three children. I have a 10-year-old daughter, a three-year-old son, and an eight-month-old daughter. Oh. Um, and if I'm home, I, I mean, I don't know about other moms out there, but I will either tend to the kids or play with the kids or change a diaper or I'll end up doing laundry or seeing what's in the fridge or returning a phone call or there's just so much to pull me out of mm. writing while I'm home. So I, um, we have a, a sitter who watches the two little ones um, Monday through Thursday from 9 to 2. So I go to Starbucks and um, where there aren't as many distractions and I have a tea and I, I write there. Um, one of the things, I don't plot. And it's so funny you asked that. When I um, when I began Left Neglected, there was a lot of terror around writing my second book mm. on the heels of the mm. phenomenon that was still Alice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just sort of, oh, my God, can I do this again? Will, it, will I finish on time? Will it be any good? Mm. Um, the pressure of the sophomore. The pressure, exactly. <laughs> so, so two things, one having to do with plot and one having to do with, with sort of that terror, is when I would sit down to write, one of the things I would do is pull out a journal – and write three pages, um, handwritten stream of consciousness to sort of just get out all of the angst and the worry. And it, the writing usually went something like, I'm absolutely terrified to write the next chapter. I don't know what I'm doing. What if this isn't any good? And it would end with, you know, Lisa, relax. You're not writing the whole novel today. <laughs> you're, writing, you're writing probably three to four pages. And they can be horrible. That's okay. Write it anyway. Um, just keep going. A little pep talk, really. And in terms of plot, I was, you know, I don't plot my novels. I sort of have an idea for a character and something that will happen to this character. And I sort of let it evolve from there. And I was worried that maybe this is wrong. Maybe other all other writers plot and mm-hmm. I don't. And, you know, what what's wrong with me? <laughs> but I actually, I read, um, I read a great book called uh, On Writing by Stephen King. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't plot either. And here's how he describes it, and it's exactly how it feels for me. So he describes his writing process as if he were driving a car late at night with no moon and no streetlights. And he can only see as far in front of him as his headlights will illuminate. But as long as he trusts that he can see that distance in front of him and he keeps going forward, he'll get to where he needs to go. Mm. And that's exactly how it feels for me. I really only can see, you know, the next chapter in front of me for sure. But beyond that, I don't really know what's going to happen. And I just trust that if I keep going, I'll get there. It's a bit of an adventure for you as well. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to discover. And oftentimes the characters will surprise me. Mm. And I'll look like a lunatic laughing out loud or crying (laughs) in Starbucks. (laughs) So in Starbucks, you must have to order a lot of tea or lattes to to sit there for for that long. Yeah, well, no, it's funny. I was I delivered a book and a baby this last year. I was pregnant while I was writing Left Neglected, and and I laid off the caffeine, so I was drinking water and wasn't nearly as much fun. <laughs> but yeah, I do. I drink a lot of tea. So, what would your advice be, Lisa, to the people who are in a completely different career and they they just have this gnawing thing inside them about wanting to write? What would you say to them? 
Oh, well, I would tell them to absolutely do it. I meet so many writers who are so fearful about writing what they want to write. They want to put it off or they create all these excuses around it, but they really do want to write their story. And I tell them to do I mean, I usually tell them, you know, you're not going to live forever, right? You, you do know that you're going to die someday. Um, so write your story. And I also tell people if they haven't made any progress and had any success finding a traditional publisher the traditional way, to go ahead and self-publish, um, to give that a try. It's it, There's a lot less of a negative stigma attached to it than there used to be. It's um, The book industry is seeing a little bit more like the um, film, independent film industry and, and the music industry where it's okay to, to self-publish as a, as a means to getting um, – getting your work into the world. Great advice. And on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Lisa. Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.